we continue with the opinion of the court in Halland v. Brackeen, beginning with Part 3 of the opinion. Part 3 We now turn to Petitioner's host of anti-commandeering arguments, which we will break into three categories. First, Petitioners challenge certain requirements that apply in involuntary proceedings to place a child in foster care or terminate parental rights. The requirements that an initiating party demonstrate active efforts to keep the Indian family together, serve notice of the proceeding on the parent or Indian custodian and tribe, and demonstrate by a heightened burden of proof and expert testimony that the child is likely to suffer serious emotional or physical damage if the parent or Indian custodian retains custody. Second, petitioners challenge ICWA's placement preferences. They claim that Congress can neither force state agencies to find preferred placements for Indian children nor require state courts to apply federal standards when making custody determinations. Third, they insist that Congress cannot force state courts to maintain or transmit to the federal government records of custody proceedings involving Indian children. Section A. As a reminder, involuntary proceedings are those to which a parent does not consent. Heightened protections for parents and tribes apply in this context, and while petitioners challenge most of them, the active efforts provision is their primary target. That provision requires any party seeking to effect an involuntary foster care placement or termination of parental rights to satisfy the court that active efforts have been made to provide remedial services and rehabilitative programs designed to prevent the breakup of the Indian family, and that these efforts have proved unsuccessful. According to petitioners, this subsection directs state and local agencies to provide extensive services to the parents of Indian children. It is well established that the Tenth Amendment bars Congress from commanding the state's officers or those of their federal subdivisions to administer or enforce a federal regulatory program. The active efforts provision, petitioners say, does just that. Petitioners' argument has a fundamental flaw. To succeed, they must show that Section 1912D harnesses a state's legislative or executive authority but the provision applies to any party who initiates an involuntary proceeding, thus sweeping in private individuals and agencies as well as government entities. A demand that either public or private actors can satisfy is unlikely to require the use of sovereign power. Notwithstanding the term any party, petitioners insist that Section 1912D is best read as a command to the states. They contend that, as a practical matter, states, not private parties, initiate the vast majority of involuntary proceedings. Despite the breadth of the language, the argument goes, states are obviously the parties to whom the statute refers. Section 
The record contains no evidence supporting the assertion that states institute the vast majority of involuntary proceedings. Examples of private suits are not hard to find, so we are skeptical that their number is negligible. Indeed, Texas's own family code permits certain private parties to initiate suits for the termination of parental rights. And while petitioners treat active efforts as synonymous with government programs, state courts have applied the active efforts requirement in private suits, too. That is consistent with ICWA's findings, which describe the role that both public and private actors played in the unjust separation of Indian children from their families and tribes. Given all this, it is implausible that Section 1912D is directed primarily, much less exclusively, at the states. Legislation that applies even-handedly to state and private actors does not typically implicate the Tenth Amendment. In South Carolina v. Baker, for example, we held that a generally applicable law regulating unregistered bombs did not commandeer the states. Rather, it required states wishing to engage in certain activity to take administrative and sometimes legislative action to comply with federal standards regulating that activity. We reached a similar conclusion in Reno v. Condon, which dealt with a statute prohibiting state motor vehicle departments, DMVs, from selling a driver's personal information without the driver's consent. The law regulated not only the state DMVs, but also private parties who had already purchased this information and sought to resell it. Applying Baker, we concluded that the Act did not require the states in their sovereign capacity to regulate their own citizens, enact any laws or regulations, or assist in the enforcement of federal statutes regulating private individuals. Instead, it permissibly regulated the states as the owners of databases. Petitioners argue that Baker and Condon are distinguishable because they addressed laws regulating a state's commercial activity while ICWA regulates a state's core sovereign function of protecting the health and safety of children within its borders. A state can stop selling bonds or a driver's personal information, petitioners say, but it cannot withdraw from the area of child welfare. Protecting children is the business of government, even if it is work in which private parties share. Nor, of course, could Texas avoid ICWA by excluding only Indian children from social services. Because states cannot exit the field, they are hostage to ICWA, which requires them to implement Congress's regulatory program for the care of Indian children and families. This argument is presumably directed at situations in which only the state can rescue a child from neglectful parents. But Section 1912 applies to more than child neglect. For instance, it applies when a biological mother arranges for private adoption without the biological father's consent. And even when a child is trapped in an abusive home, the state is not necessarily the only option for rescue. For instance, a grandmother can seek guardianship of a grandchild whose parents are failing to care for her. 
petitioners do not distinguish between these varied situations, much less isolate a domain in which only the state can act. Some amici assert that, at the very least, removing children from imminent danger in the home falls exclusively to the government. Maybe so, but that does not help petitioners' commandeering argument because the active efforts requirement does not apply to emergency removals. If ICWA commandeers state performance of a core sovereign function, petitioners do not give us the details. When a federal statute applies on its face to both private and state actors, a commandeering argument is a heavy lift, and petitioners have not pulled it off. Both state and private actors initiate involuntary proceedings, and if there is a core of involuntary proceedings committed exclusively to the sovereign, Texas neither identifies its contours nor explains what Section 1912D requires of a state in that context. Petitioners have therefore failed to show that the active efforts requirement commands the states to deploy their executive or legislative power to implement federal Indian policy. As for petitioners' challenges to other provisions of Section 1912, the notice requirement, expert witness requirement, and evidentiary standards, we doubt that requirements placed on a state as litigant implicate the Tenth Amendment. But in any event, these provisions, like Section 1912D, apply to both private and state actors, so they too pose no anti-commandeering problem. Section B. Petitioners also raise a Tenth Amendment challenge to Section 1915, which dictates placement preferences for Indian children. According to petitioners, this provision orders state agencies to perform a diligent search for placements that satisfy ICWA's hierarchy. Petitioners assert that the Department of the Interior understands Section 1915 this way, and the tribes who intervene in proceedings governed by ICWA share that understanding. For example, the Libretti's adoption of Baby O was delayed because the Isleta del Sur Pueblo tribe demanded that county officials exhaustively search for a placement with the tribe first. Just as Congress cannot compel state officials to search databases to determine the lawfulness of gun sales, petitioners argue, Congress cannot compel state officials to search for a federally preferred placement. As an initial matter, this argument encounters the same problem that plagues petitioners with respect to Section 1912. Petitioners have not shown that the diligent search requirement, which applies to both private and public parties, demands the use of state sovereign authority. But this argument fails for another reason, too. Section 1915 does not require anyone, much less the states, to search for alternative placements. As the United States emphasizes, petitioners' interpretation cannot be squared with this court's decision in Adoptive Couple, which held that there simply is no preference to apply if no alternative party 
that is eligible to be preferred has come forward. Instead, the burden is on the tribe or other objecting party to produce a higher-ranked placement. So as it stands, petitioners assert an anti-commandeering challenge to a provision that does not command state agencies to do anything. State courts are a different matter. ICWA indisputably requires them to apply the placement preferences in making custody determinations. Petitioners argue that this, too, violates the anti-commandeering doctrine. To be sure, they recognize that Congress can require state courts, unlike state executives and legislatures, to enforce federal law. But they draw a distinction between requiring state courts to entertain federal causes of action and requiring them to apply federal law to state causes of action. They claim that if state law provides the cause of action— as Texas law does here, then the state gets to call the shots, unhindered by any federal instruction to the contrary. This argument runs headlong into the Constitution. The Supremacy Clause provides that the laws of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. Thus, when Congress enacts a valid statute pursuant to its Article I powers, state law is naturally preempted to the extent of any conflict with a federal statute. End of story. That a federal law modifies a state law cause of action does not limit its preemptive effect. Section C. Finally, we turn to ICWA's record-keeping provisions. Section 1951A requires courts to provide the Secretary of the Interior with a copy of the final order in the adoptive placement of any Indian child. The court must also provide other information as may be necessary to show the child's name and tribal affiliation, the names and addresses of the biological parents and adoptive parents, and the identity of any agency with information about the adoptive placement. Section 1915E requires the state to maintain a record evidencing the efforts to comply with the order of preference specified by ICWA. The record shall be made available at any time upon the request of the Secretary or the Indian Child's Tribe. Petitioners argue that Congress cannot conscript the states into federal service by assigning them record-keeping tasks. The anti-commandeering doctrine applies distinctively to a state court's adjudicative responsibilities. As we just explained, this distinction is evident in the Supremacy Clause, which refers specifically to state judges. From the beginning, the text manifested in practice. As originally understood, the Constitution allowed Congress to require state judges to enforce federal prescriptions, insofar as those prescriptions related to matters appropriate for the judicial power. In Prins, we indicated that this principle may extend to tasks that are ancillary to a quintessentially adjudicative task such as recording, registering, and certifying documents. 
Petitioners reject Prinz's observation, insisting that there is a distinction between rules of decision, which state courts must follow, and record-keeping requirements, which they can ignore. But Prinz described numerous historical examples of Congress imposing record-keeping and reporting requirements on state courts. The early Congresses passed laws directing state courts to perform certain tasks fairly described as ancillary to the court's adjudicative duties. For example, state courts were required to process and record applications for United States citizenship. The clerk, or other court official, was required to certify and transmit the application to the Secretary of State, along with information about the name, age, nation, residence, and occupation, for the time being, of the alien. The clerk also had to register aliens seeking naturalization and issue certificates confirming the court's receipt of the alien's request for registration. Federal law imposed other duties on state courts unrelated to immigration and naturalization. The Judiciary Act of 1789, which authorized any justice of the peace or other magistrate of any of the United States to arrest and imprison federal offenders, required the judge to set bail at the defendant's request. Congress also required state courts to administer oaths to prisoners to issue certificates authorizing the apprehension of fugitives, and to collect proof of the claims of Canadian refugees who had aided the United States in the Revolutionary War. There is more. Shortly after ratification, Congress passed a detailed statute that required state court judges to gather and certify reports. The Act authorized commanders of ships to request examinations of their vessels from any justice of the peace of the city, town, or place. The judge would order three qualified people to prepare a report on the vessel's condition, which the judge would review and endorse. Then the judge was required to issue an order regarding whether the said ship or vessel is fit to proceed on the intended voyage, and if not, whether such repairs can be made or deficiencies supplied where the ship or vessel then lays. These early congressional enactments provide contemporaneous and weighty evidence of the Constitution's meaning. Collectively, they demonstrate that the Constitution does not prohibit the federal government from imposing adjudicative tasks on state courts. This makes sense against the backdrop of the Madisonian Compromise. Since Article Three established only the Supreme Court and made inferior federal courts optional, Congress could have relied almost entirely on state courts to apply federal law. Had Congress taken that course, it would have had to rely on state courts to perform adjudication-adjacent tasks, too. We now confirm what we suggested in Prinz. Congress may impose ancillary record-keeping requirements related to state court proceedings without violating the Tenth Amendment. Such requirements do not offload the federal government's responsibilities onto the states, nor do they put state legislatures and executives under the direct control of Congress. 
Rather, they are a logical consequence of our system of dual sovereignty in which state courts are required to apply federal law. Here, ICWA's record-keeping requirements are comparable in kind and in degree to the historical examples. Like the naturalization laws, Section 1951A requires the state court to transmit to the secretary a copy of a court order along with basic demographic information. Section 1915E likewise requires the state to record a limited amount of information, the efforts made to comply with the placement preferences, and provide the information to the secretary and to the child's tribe. These duties are ancillary to the state court's obligation to conduct child custody proceedings in compliance with ICWA. Thus, ICWA's record-keeping requirements are consistent with the Tenth Amendment. Part 4 Petitioners raise two additional claims, an equal protection challenge to ICWA's placement preferences and a non-delegation challenge to the provision allowing tribes to alter the placement preferences. We do not reach the merits of these claims because no party before the court has standing to raise them. Article 3 requires a plaintiff to show that she has suffered an injury in fact that is fairly traceable to the defendant's allegedly unlawful conduct and likely to be redressed by the requested relief. Neither the individual petitioners nor Texas can pass that test. Section A. The individual petitioners argue that ICWA injures them by placing them on unequal footing with Indian parents who seek to adopt or foster an Indian child. Under ICWA's hierarchy of preferences, non-Indian parents are generally last in line for potential placements. According to petitioners, this erects a barrier that makes it more difficult for members of one group to obtain a benefit than it is for members of another group. The racial discrimination they allege counts as an Article III injury. But the individual petitioners have not shown that this injury is likely to be redressed by judicial relief. They seek an injunction preventing the federal parties from enforcing ICWA and a declaratory judgment that the challenged provisions are unconstitutional. Yet enjoining the federal parties would not remedy the alleged injury because state courts apply the placement preferences and state agencies carry out the court-ordered placements. The state officials who implement ICWA are not parties to the suit, and there is no reason they should be obliged to honor an incidental legal determination the suit produced. So an injunction would not give petitioners legally enforceable protection from the allegedly imminent harm. Petitioners' request for a declaratory judgment suffers from the same flaw. This form of relief conclusively resolves the legal rights of the parties. But again, state officials are non-parties who would not be bound by the judgment. Thus, the equal protection issue would not be settled between petitioners and the officials who matter, which would leave the declaratory judgment powerless to remedy the alleged harm. After all, the point of a declaratory judgment 
is to establish a binding adjudication that enables the parties to enjoy the benefits of reliance and repose secured by res judicata. Without preclusive effect, a declaratory judgment is little more than an advisory opinion. The individual petitioners do not dispute or even address any of this. Instead, they insist that state courts are likely to defer to a federal court's interpretation of federal law, thus giving rise to a substantial likelihood that a favorable judgment will redress their injury. They point out that, in the Brackeen's ongoing efforts to adopt YRJ, the trial court stated that it would follow the federal court's ruling on the Brackeen's constitutional claims. Thus, they reason, winning this case would solve their problems. But redressability requires that the court be able to afford relief through the exercise of its power, not through the persuasive or even awe-inspiring effect of the opinion explaining the exercise of its power. Otherwise, redressability would be satisfied whenever a decision might persuade actors who are not before the court, contrary to Article III's strict prohibition on issuing advisory opinions. It is a federal court's judgment, not its opinion, that remedies an injury. Thus, it is the judgment, not the opinion, that demonstrates redressability. The individual petitioners can hope for nothing more than an opinion, so they cannot satisfy Article 3. Section B. Texas also lacks standing to challenge the placement preferences. It has no equal protection rights of its own, and it cannot assert equal protection claims on behalf of its citizens because a state does not have standing as parents patri to bring an action against the federal government. That should make the issue open and shut. Yet Texas advances few creative arguments for why it has standing despite these settled rules. It leads with what one might call an unclean hands injury. ICWA injures Texas by requiring it to break its promise to its citizens that it will be colorblind in child custody proceedings. This is not the kind of concrete and particularized invasion of a legally protected interest necessary to demonstrate an injury in fact. Were it otherwise, a state would always have standing to bring constitutional challenges when it is complicit in enforcing federal law. Texas tries to finesse this problem by characterizing ICWA as a fiscal trap, forcing it to discriminate against its citizens or lose federal funds. But ICWA is not a spending clause statute. Texas bases this argument on a vague reference to a different spending clause statute that it does not challenge. And Texas has not established that those funds, which the state has accepted for years, are conditioned on compliance with the placement preferences anyway. Texas also claims a direct pocketbook injury associated with the costs of keeping records, providing notice in involuntary proceedings and producing expert testimony before moving a child to foster care or terminating parental rights. But these alleged costs are not fairly traceable to the placement preferences, 
which operate independently of the provisions Texas identifies. The provisions do not rise or fall together. Proving that the placement preferences are unconstitutional would not show that enforcement of any of these other provisions violates the Constitution. In other words, Texas would continue to incur the complained-of costs even if it were relieved of the duty to apply the placement preferences. The former, then, cannot justify a challenge to the latter. Because Texas is not injured by the placement preferences, neither would it be injured by a tribal resolution that altered those preferences pursuant to Section 1915C. Texas, therefore, does not have standing to bring either its equal protection or its non-delegation claims. For these reasons, we affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals regarding Congress's constitutional authority to enact ICWA. On the anti-commandeering claims, we reverse. On the equal protection and non-delegation claims, we vacate the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand with instructions to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction. It is so ordered.